We've heard the waterfall. We've seen a potentially new relationship between modern or Dante's poetry and classical poetry. And now we are ready to come to the conclusion of the 16th Canto of Inferno, lines 124 through 136. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. We're somewhere right toward the center of Inferno. We have been for a very long time with the violent, those violent against others, those violent against themselves, and those violent against God, which has apparently included homosexuals who are violent against God's child nature. And now we come out to the end of the 16th canto, although not yet the end of the seventh circle, which is going to play into this passage dramatically. Wait till you see what's ahead. When it comes to the truth of something that has the surface features of a lie, a guy should keep his mouth shut, if at all possible, for can bring in disgrace through no fault of his own. But I can't keep quiet. By the very scribblings of this comedy reader, I swear to you, and boy do I hope they bring me favor, that I saw right in the thick and murky air a figure swimming up that would make the most confident hearts marvel. The thing was like a diver that rises up, coming to the surface after he has gone down deep to pull up an anchor hooked on a reef or something hidden down under the water, with his arms over his head and his feet drawn up toward his body. And that's the end of the 16th canto, in which A, the poet, names the work he's writing, B, the poet and the pilgrim swear on this very work that what they saw is real, and C, the figure comes up and becomes a simile. This is a wild, crazy passage. We're going to take it slowly, bit by bit, and I'm going to explain a lot about that very problem of naming the work the poet is writing comedy. So let's get going. The passage starts when it comes to the truth of something that has the surface features of a lie. Notice the bringing up of the notion of lying right here before you name the work that you're writing. If you remember, Dante apparently has a cord around his waist. It just came up in the last passage. Virgil asked for this cord, apparently. Dante took it off, but it was somehow wound up and knotted. Not sure how you wear a wound up and knotted cord, but it was wound up and knotted. Tante the Pilgrim handed it to Virgil. Virgil threw it over the edge. It is clearly a way to call something up. And this thing, this figure, una figura, we'll talk more about that in a minute, comes swimming up through the air, swimming. So Dante is imagining flight as swimming. We want to talk more about that too, and much more about that when we hit the 17th canto of Inferno, but want to talk about that. Just loaded all over the place, but first, let's just stop and say the passage starts with this notion of truth and lie. Then it comes to the truth of something that on the, has the surface features of a lie. A guy should keep his mouth shut if at all possible, for it can bring him disgrace through no fault of his own. You know, listen, I'm going to tell you something, and you're going to say, there is no way this happened. 
<laughs> and by saying there is no way this happened, you're going to kind of bring disgrace on me. You're going to think I'm a liar, but I'm telling you the truth. Oh, gosh, do you see the complication that's setting in here? Do you really think this really actually happened? I don't. I don't think that... <laughs> <laughs> walked across the known universe, and it wasn't even in Dante's own day. He's playing fast and loose, and go back two episodes of this podcast. He's playing fast and loose with the geography of Italy. That may tie into what's going on here. In other words, I'm making it all up, and in fact, I'm going to dare you to call me on it. Before we get quite to that level of bravado, let's keep reading the passage. But I, the passage says, can't keep quiet. Who is this I? I assume that this I is the poet. That is, that at the end of this weird interplay that we had in the last episode of this podcast, in the previous passage, in which we had the pilgrim and the poet and Virgil in some kind of triangulation, now we've landed on the poet. And the poet is standing back there, or sitting at his desk with his quill, writing this and saying, I can't keep quiet. I can't keep this under wraps. And he says, by the very scribblings is how I translated it of this comedy. Let's just stop right there. Pele note. I translated it again as scribblings by the notations, by the glosses, by the notes of this comedy. But notice that that by itself, note note, is a notion of fragmentariness. It's fragments, pieces, notes that I'm taking. We know that the pilgrim is writing things down in a notebook that a lady is going to gloss on down the road. So it's not actually by the comedy as a whole, but by the fragments that will make up the comedy. It's curious and adds to the irony of the passage. So by the very scribblings or the notes of this comedy, reader, I swear to you, and boy, do I hope they bring me favor, that I saw right in the thick and murky air a figure swimming up. Okay, let's stop and think about the word comedy for a second. Comedy is more a question in Dante's day of tone and and style rather than thematics. We think now in genre theory, and when I was in grad school, I loved genre theory. It was my thing. And listen, I was working on 19th century lit, and genre plays big into 19th century lit, into the expectations of what is written. But in Dante's day, the notions of comedy and tragedy are slightly different than what we might think of today. Remember, this is even pre-Shakespearean for English speakers. In fact, comedy is more about style. It's low poetry that begins in grief and ends in happiness. That is the journey of comedy itself, beginning in grief and ending in happiness, but low poetry, mostly written in their vernacular. Let me make a distinction here. Dante is writing a comedy that makes reference to Virgil's Aeneid, which Dante would see as a tragedy. Why would Dante see the Aeneid as a tragedy when Aeneas founds Rome that brings about the papacy and the whole Catholic Church? Because of the 
style of the Aeneid. The style is so vaulted and so difficult. They do not give you the Aeneid to read in your first year of Latin. At least, mostly they don't. If they did in your first year of Latin, good for you. It is an extraordinarily vaulted text, and thus, in Dante's day, it classifies as a tragedy because of the level of rhetorical complexity. Here, for the first time, Dante names his poem, Comedy. What he's doing is stating that A, it is vernacular, it is low in tone, it's a question of the stylistics, and I want to call your attention to where we've been over over Cantos 15 and 16. Let me remind you about all that highfalutin rhetoric from Brunetto Latini, all those crab apples and figs and goats and grass. Let me remind you of the very formal rhetorical strategies that Rustacucci engaged in in the early parts of this canto. And then let me call your attention to that prophetic statement in which the pilgrim steps back, I made so much about this in a previous episode of the podcast, and gives a prophetic pronouncement about Florentine corruption. What I want to call your attention to is that the prophetic pronouncement is stated very plainly. It is in plain speech that the pilgrim and the poet behind him condemns Florentine treachery and sin. That plain speech of the prophetic oracle in Canto 16 is in direct contrast to the high style of Brunetto Latini's crab apples and figs and goats and grass and follow your star and the formal rhetoric that Rustacucci engages in with the flattery of the hearer and the introduction of well-placed people, the complimentary and flattering introduction of well-placed people, all to turn around and absolve themselves from guilt those rhetorical highfalutin strategies on both cases, Latini's and Rustacucci's, are in marked contrast to the very straightforward language of that prophetic pronouncement of Florence's guilt. And out of all of that, we come to a passage in which the poet names the work he's writing, comedy. He's saying, essentially, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing that plain spoken stuff, and it has arisen here in the 15th and 16th cantos of Inferno, not by mistake, but because of a rejection, I would argue, of Latini's style of a way of writing the vernacular that tries to mimic or ape classical literature with its highfalutin rhetoric. It tries to still pretend like it's as lofty as the Aeneid. And in fact, we come here to this moment out of all of that in which this work is named for the first time comedy. But we're going to save that for just a second and look at this figure. I swear on my comedy, on the notes of my comedy, the fragments, the pieces of my comedy. I put it together yet. It's not a whole work. So by the notes of my comedy, I swear I really saw this. And what did I see? Up through the thick and murky air, I saw una figura, a figure swimming up that would make even the most confident hearts marvel. And I just want to stop on the una figura. It is a very artistic word. It's figuration, representation. Remember the leopard is described as having a painted pelt 
in the last passage, and I made much about that as an artistic medium, painted pelt. Well, here we have another artistic painterly word, figura, a word that is becoming more and more important in the development of painting in the late medieval pre early Renaissance phrases with the coming of Giotto and others. This is a word that brings up notions of painterly art, una figura. And again, that ideas of art, painted coat on that leopard, figura here, all are swimming around, <laughs> use the metaphor in the text, swimming around this figure and the naming of the work at hand, Oh, it just all strikes me as incredibly intentional. And notice that the writer, the poet, has addressed you as reader, not listener. I swear on the scribblings of my comedy, reader. That notion that you that that notion that the text is aware it is being read and not said aloud is incredibly important to a writer's own skill. Listen, if I'm writing a text that is to be read aloud. I'm going to write it in certain ways. I'm going to write it with verbal cues. Remember, you're Homer. Dante, yes, you know, didn't know Homer. But remember, you're Homer and how that there are certain phrases that repeat. Achilles always gets a phrase. <laughs> the wine dark sea always gets its wine darkness. You know, there are certain phrases that keep repeating in order to remind you in this oral tradition of who we're talking about, whether it be one of the characters or some some uh, uh, some bits of the landscape itself, there are repeated phrases in the oral tradition to remind you constantly of where we are and what we're talking about. But if you're writing a book, it's completely different. You don't then need those oral verbal cues, and instead you can engage in a more complex and, dare I say, meta format. And that's where we're headed here. In fact, what's happened at the end of all of this through Cantos 15 and 16 is we have moved through rhetorical discussions of how to gain fame and how to write the poem that you need to write. And we have come out at this place, which is fully meta, which is about the work that is being written. We have reached a place in which the poet's art has deepened and become self referential. I should note to you that this is the third of seven direct addresses to the reader in Inferno. We shouldn't be surprised that there are seven, given the numerology of seven and the perfection of creation of seven days of the week. Nor should we be surprised that this is the third one with all of the Trinitarian notions of thirdness that fall here. And the Trinity is a self-referential triad, right? That looks and refers to itself theologically in Christian thought. And here is the third reference to the reader or direct address to the reader that itself is a meta reference. Do you see how complicated this is becoming? And what happens to this figura? Uh, that's even more interesting. Una figura is not very visualized. And so the canto ends 
with a final simile. How how could it end otherwise? How could two cantos that are about the nature of rhetorical strategies to create the document that will lead you to be known beyond your death, how could it end anywhere but in the high poetic technique of simile? The thing was like a diver who rises up, coming to the surface after he has gone down deep to pull up an anchor hooked on a reef or something hidden under the water with his arms over his head and his feet drawn up to his body. And I take it that this simile that ends this canto is thematic as much as any other simile written in comedy. That is, that there are layers and depths in every direction. And this, it strikes me, is a direct play, a direct hit, a direct punch at the notion of comedy being mere allegory. And I don't mean to be sneering with that mere, but still, allegory is an overlay. I have my characters, every man, grace, love, joy, acting on the stage, acting as if they were humans, but they represent certain types. However, that overlay here is, let's not say dismissed, but complicated by the notion that when I name my book comedy, I then give a simile about diving to depths, not an overlay of meaning, but instead the comedy itself exists on layers of depth below it, layers that have to be parsed and taken apart below it, just like this figure, because this figure coming up, and we haven't met this figure yet, we will in the 17th canto, but this figure coming up is clearly related to comedy because I swear on comedy that I saw this thing. And what was this thing? It was like something coming up out of the depths and revealing itself. So we are being encouraged to figure out that comedy itself is full of depths. And down there, you can pull up the anchors that have and made you stuck, or you can pull up something hidden under the water. What would be hidden? Treasure, fish, food, um, stuff that you're looking for, stuff of ancient civilizations. Good things are generally hidden down there under the water and perhaps bad things too. But so you look down into the depths, you dive in, you hold your breath, and the thing gets deeper and deeper the more you look at it. If that's not a description of comedy while also a description of una figura here, I don't know what is. So let's talk about the naming of the work at the end of the 16th canto of Inferno. Long ago, in 1570, the very, very prominent Dantean critic, Lodovico Castaveltro, who wrote a partial co a commentary on the Inferno, or I should say wrote a, co a commentary all the way through, oh, about two-thirds of the way through Inferno of Inferno, Castelvetro, who we've talked about previously in this podcast, complains that Dante here admits that his entire strategy is done with classical imagery. Castelvetro's comment is that this figure that comes up is first vague, una figura, and then the figure that actually is going to appear in the 17th canto, and we're going to see this figure directly in the next passage, the figure that appears is not related to classical imagery at all. And so Castelvetro in 1570 basically says this passage 
is funky. He didn't like it. He complains about it. He says, ah, this is the moment in which the poet steps away from classical imagery and classical thought and becomes too enamored with his own writing. Of course, you know, I disagree with that, but it did sit there in the commentary tradition for a long time. In 1971, Franco Ferrucci, in the yearbook of Italian studies, changes this and says, this is the passage in which Dante admits not only that there's no classical basis anymore for what he's writing, or he's not going to base it on classical literature anymore, but that there's no historical basis for this journey. That is, by Dante promising, swearing, like you swear on a Bible, swearing on his own work that he really saw this figure, Dante's winking at you and saying, come on, you know everything I'm writing is a fiction. You know I didn't really see this thing. And so by swearing on his own book, not on the Bible, he's admitting to the lie of what he's writing. I think that is overstated and I don't, I just don't find that that actually does much justice to what happens. What it does is it seems to wrap this passage up in a knot, and then I can't explain the remaining cantos of comedy after this. Because if, if Dante's saying, ah, oh, there's no historical basis to this journey, and, you know, this whole thing's made up, after this, that changes my whole attitude toward everything all the way up to the top of paradise. So while it seems that Ferrucci's right, this is a complicated passage in which the writer seems to be doing something wild with his own text, not sure that he's just dismissing it as non-historical. In 76, Robert Hollander, the eminent Dantista who just passed away, in 76, Robert Hollander made a claim that's slightly different from this. He sees this passage as a debate with St. Thomas Aquinas. Basically, St. Thomas Aquinas complains that poetry, imaginative literature, is all untruth. Why, 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 why waste your time? I'm putting words in Aquinas' mouth here, but hey... <laughs> I'm the guy to do it. Um, basically, Aquinas complains that, you know, hey, poetry's a lie. Literature's a lie. Imaginative literature's a lie. Don't study that stuff. Study the Bible. Study the commentaries on the Bible. That stuff's real. That's not made up. What Hollander claims is that in this passage, Dante is saying that comedy can be true without being real. In other words, he's arguing with St. Thomas Aquinas and saying, hey, you know what? You can write a form, comedy, in which you're not concerned about real. You're not concerned about, let's say, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which Thomas Aquinas, of course, would see as a historical real fact. But instead, you can still write truth without it being real. And so it's a slight torque, a slight tweak on Ferrucci's argument that is a wink at me to say, hey, okay, this isn't real, but it's still true. And the way I know it's true is that final simile about the diver coming up because it's coming up for air. It's coming up to breathe if it is a diver coming up. It's coming up for air to breathe, etc. And by that coming up to the surface, I can see that this is down deep truth coming up toward me that I am writing Dante is writing that is different from the way Aquinas complained about poetry. 
Maybe. I used to think, and I played with this for a long time, that this passage does violence to comedy in the same way that the violent do violent to others themselves and God. That is, this passage so complicates comedy in the middle of the circle, or toward the end, of the circle of the violent, that it is actually doing violence toward the text itself, or it is practicing a kind of violence, because you have to say, oh, you swore on your own book that you really saw this? I don't think so. And therefore, the notes, the tatters, the fragments of the book are literally shredded further. And in this shredding of actually the truth and reality claims of comedy itself, the poet is performing a kind of violence on his own poem. I have played with that idea for a long time, and I can't make it work in my head because I don't think that's the poet's focus. So let me give you two other options for why this sudden naming of comedy. One is it's just an unbelievable, complex irony. Without telling you too much of the plot, what is coming up is the beast of fraud. And it's going to be named the beast of fraud. And you'll note that the beast of fraud, we're about to enter the eighth circle of hell, which are which is full of the fraudulent, it is called up by a cord around Dante's own body. So Dante the Pilgrim has the cord that calls up the fraudulent <laughs> creature, the very beast of fraud itself, that represents the kind of guard keeper and representation of the eighth circle of hell. And so the fraudulent nature of the poem is being ironically invoked right here. That is, the poem we know is a fraud. If fraud, as in, it didn't really happen. And here we're about to descend to fraud. And so in a kind of wild, weird, deep, underwater irony, the fraudulence of the poem itself is being invoked at the moment in which the beast of fraud arises from a chord that the pilgrim himself has around his body that allows him to rewrite his own work from the first canto because he apparently wanted to catch that leopard or so at least he now says thereby even causing us to fraudulently look back at the fraud of the first canto. Wow, that is such complex irony. It makes my brain hurt. I have to tell you that that is the way that I have seen this passage for a long time. That is a complex irony on the nature of fraud and writing itself. But I've come to a recently, I've come to a different notion. The rules inside this text are their own. That is, I am swearing to you by the fragments of my comedy that I really saw this. And therefore, the rules inside the pasture that Dante has built, remember my old metaphor of fences and pastures, the rules inside this pasture that Dante is building, comedy, are their own. And this strikes me as the very turn in which the author takes over 
his own work. So I am kind of agreeing with Ferrucci and Hollander. That is the rejection of all classical models. But more importantly, it strikes me that we have come to the point in which Dante's teacher, or at least the person he wants us to think is his teacher, Brunetto Latini, and then Dante's historical heroes have been with him on the burning sands. He has rejected both of them for various reasons, and now he has turned and taken control of his own text and, in fact, used it as the authority to swear on that this really happened. In other words, it is all artifice. It is all true. It is all mine. I'm in control of this. And furthermore, like Adam in Eden, I'm naming this comedy. So here, at the end of the 16th canto, we have come to the moment in which the writer finally takes control of his own text. And in so doing, the text is going to change fundamentally Mm, with a little turn of the screw in the 17th canto, and then with a giant turn of the screw in the 18th. So to get there, you got to subscribe. You got to be a part of this podcast, a part of the walk. Hey, what could be better than this, right? Just sit around and think about metapoetics and think about how the poem becomes its own reflecting mirror, reflecting back on itself, and think about how a poet can swear on his own work when really, you really can't swear on your own work. You know, a work itself cannot make truth claims for itself, can it? I mean, is that possible, or is that in fact the way all works work? They make their own truth claims and carry forward. We're going to have so much more to say about that when we meet the beast of fraud in the next episode. So stick around, subscribe, rate this podcast, drop down to the bottom of the Apple menu and give it a rating. I really appreciate it. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for taking that amount of effort and doing that. And come back because, wow, the 17th Canto, I can't promise it's quite as crazy as the 15th and the 16th, but it gets close and it gets actually gorgeous which is something we haven't seen for a while. Gorgeous, scenic writing. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking the Dog.